G'day humans! Welcome to the show that goes where other shows dare not tread. The show that rejects partisanship and tribalism. I'm Josh Zepps, your humble interrogator, your humble interlocutor, and each week I hunt down the world's most interesting people to wrestle with questions that normally get everyone in a huff. Because so much of modern culture and politics and media, especially social media, panders to what you already believe and distorts what you don't already believe. It reinforces what you're comfortable thinking about. This is not the show for that. We know that change doesn't happen inside echo chambers, so step out of the comfort zone, flex your mind, tread on some landmines, and have some uncomfortable conversations. This week on the show, hallelujah, we have a ceasefire in Gaza, apparently, supposedly, for now, while I'm looking at my watch. Maybe not by the time you hear this. I hope so. After 10 days of bloodshed between Israel and Hamas, there is at least a new mini-chapter of peace in the overall context of hardship, warfare, and bloodshed in that corner of the world. And so I wanted to bring you one of the best conversations I've ever had about how we think about Israel. This is a couple of years old now, but it's as true as it has ever been and as interesting as it has ever been because the overarching themes of Israel and Palestine are unchanged, regardless of who started what and which skirmish and who did what in East Jerusalem and when did when did Hamas fire what rockets and all of that tit for tat. All of that is irrelevant fundamentally. What this conversation is about is what it means to judge a nation, what it means to aspire towards self-determination, and how you can adjudicate competing rights, competing legitimate rights. You probably already have your own opinions about Israel and about Palestine. There is no chance that I'm going to convince you one way or another. And to be honest, I don't have a strong opinion one way or another because I can fully appreciate and understand the perspective of both sides, which is something that I want to do on this show. And so this conversation is with someone named Chloe Valdery. Chloe is essentially an anti-racism trainer in the United States. She has come up with a concept called compassionate anti-racism, which is guided by the principles of Martin Luther King, combines developmental psychology with pop culture and really positions her theory of anti-racism on a basis of understanding and humility and vulnerability and self-acceptance in contrast to what she sees as the rather negative and simplistic versions of anti-racism that have become popular of late in the United States. Chloe spent a year as a Bartley Fellow at the Wall Street Journal. She's lectured at Harvard. She's written in the New York Times. Her TED Talk called How Love Can Help Repair Social Inequality has nearly 2 million views. And she has an article out now in the current edition of Newsweek entitled Black People Are Far More Powerful Than Critical Race Theory Preachers. We get to a little bit of that at the end of this conversation, but I want to bring you the bulk of it to really help you think about engaging with the Middle East in a new way with fresh eyes. Please enjoy this old conversation, which is more relevant now than it ever has been, with Chloe Valerie. One of the things that I, I have enjoyed observing about you is not just that you're articulate and, and clear-headed, but that in this era where where identity politics is so pronounced, like you would expect that a person's Jewish heritage or Muslim faith or Arab ethnicity or African-American identity would dictate how they think about geopolitics. And you cut against that cliche, <laughs> not, not yeah. just by sounding not like a black civil rights um, activist, but by also not siding with the Palestinians in the, in the Israeli-Palestinian uh, uh, battle, and not, or rather, I might just say, not always assuming that Israel is, is the moral monster and right. the aggressor. And I have problems with this as well, because as someone who's Jewish, who's ethnically Jewish, Myself, mm-hmm. I hold Israel to a much higher standard than I do of terrorist groups. I think I just sort mm-hmm. of take it for granted that terrorist groups are shitheads 
um, and I expect that democratic Western countries ought to behave better than that. So I, I get annoyed when there's a false equivalence of saying like, oh, but you're not talking about how bad Hamas was. Well, yeah, that's because well, I take it as a given that Hamas are shitheads. <laughs> like, uh, yeah. I, that's why I'm critical of Netanyahu and the, and, the, and the intransigence on the Israeli side. So I didn't mean to dive into Israel so soon, but you can take <laughs> – I'll give you an A or B. You can, you can either go so – you can either go straight to how do we, how do we resolve the, ident- the obsession with identity politics in the States, or you can go to mm-hmm. why I'm wrong to be uncomfortable with Israel. Uh, take your pick. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, there's an interesting – I'm, I'm, I'm like thinking about this live right now. So there's an interesting thread between the identity politics that oftentimes dictates how the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is discussed. And of course, identity politics in that, that is sort of becoming more in vogue in, Amer- in American domestic politics. Uh, there's an interesting psychology that underpins both of those situations, I think. Uh, look, when it comes to the, like zooming out, like discussing the Israeli-Palestinian conflict apart from identity politics or or aside from identity politics, I don't think there's anything wrong with being critical of the BB Netanyahu government or not being critical for whatever reasons that you you know want to hold. Um, I think being critical of BB's government though is separate from perhaps uh, one's viewpoint on, on Hamas or, 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 you know, just, just being very clear or being very aware, rather, that Hamas is playing a very long-term PR game on social media and just being aware of that, uh, that that is the context in which you were walking in when certain things happen in the military landscape. There are other things happening in the social media landscape that Hamas is very deliberately uh, toying with and exploiting and can you just articulate as, can you just unpack that and articulate it a bit for people who don't really follow it yeah so i mean if you if you were to follow hamas's twitter page or uh you know things of that nature you know hamas is notorious for using human shields um and they use human shields not just because it's effective from a military perspective because israel is unwilling to use human shields but also it's, it's it's effective from a from a social media perspective because if you see more and more obviously Palestinian civilians uh, murdered or or killed rather, then Hamas can essentially exploit you, the audience's compassion, and use that to direct attention to what Israel is doing as opposed to what Hamas is doing, putting them in the line of fire in the first place. So that's just like a a, a trick, a cute trick that Hamas uses, which has been amplified because of our increasingly digital way of communicating with each other and because of the way social media works, um, rewarding clickbait, uh, clickbait material that isn't, that doesn't really allow for nuance and again, that deep complex conversation. Uh, so I think it's important to be aware of that once you're, when you're talking about, you know, uh, skirmishes between Hamas and, and, and the Israeli military. But I think that the, you know, criticizing the BB government is a separate issue and, you know, I, I think you can criticize at leisure. I might disagree with your criticism, but I think that's a separate issue from from the Hamas situation. So what would your position be about Israel if you had to summarize it? Israel's cool. I like Israel. Israel's pretty dope. No, um, so I'm, you know, I, I'm a Zionist. You got great food. I think a lot of people... <laughs> I'm a Zionist. And look, for my own personal reasons, I'm very much fascinated by Israeli society. I'm actually... I'm, I'm a brand ambassador for a media company called Jerusalem U, which is based in Jerusalem. And right now I'm working on a YouTube series about identity in Israeli society, because I actually think it's quite fascinating and complex. And the way identity works in Israeli society is very different from the way it works in American society. And we're creating this series really to empower young Jews to be able to explore in the diaspora in, in North America, to be able to explore their own Jewish identity looking through the lens and paradigm of Israeli society. And I think that there's even interesting things that we as Americans, both Jews, well, you're not, you're in Australia, but both we as Americans, both Jews and non-Jews can learn from certain trends in Israeli society uh, and and certain different aspects of identity. Um, For example, just to, just to give a a quick shameless plug, uh, I'm doing a, an episode on the Druze community, which is a fascinating community in Israeli society. The Druze community 
is a minority. Their most re- their religious community, their most revered prophet is Jethro. For those of you who aren't familiar with that, Jethro was considered to be the father-in-law of Moses. Um, so the Druze feel an incredible sense of loyalty to the Jewish people, and they actually uh, enroll in the military at, at a higher rate than that of the Jews in Israel, something like 85%. And in this episode, I, I'm interested in unpacking the question of what does the concept of loyalty mean? What does it mean to be loyal to uh, your fellow citizen, your fellow neighbor. And it's especially interesting because we, in our very polarized, uh, you know, time right now in America, call ourselves the United States of America. But what does it actually mean to be united and loyal to and fe- have a feeling of obligation to your fellow citizen, regardless of, you know, his or her personal political background or religion or skin color, etc. Like, what does that concept of loyalty and again obligation to one another actually mean and what can we learn from the druze to apply in our own society to perhaps maybe heal the wounds Hmm. that are festering in our own society right now and And that is a great segue (laughs) (laughs) i don't want to i don't want to leave israel yet though now that you brought it up because there are a few interesting things firstly it could one one of the reasons why the Druze and for people who don't know the Druze they are a fascinating uh, people D R U Z E or Z E uh, the the one of the reasons why they might enroll in the military more than Jews is because the Orthodox don't serve right yes correct yeah. uh, which is a weird little so kind of escape uh, get out of jail free card depending on how yeah. how how religiously delusional you are and I, I say, <laughs> say religiously delusional against all faiths not necessarily just Jews um, why why so that's interesting that you're talking about how do you all come together under one identity because one of the interesting things about America when a foreigner moves there even a foreigner from a new world country like Australia which has a similar kind of version of what I'm about to describe is that when you come to America you subscribe to a set of conditions and credos that make you Mm -hmm. American and it doesn't matter where you're Mm -hmm. from or what your faith is there is a unifying force behind the the, I suppose the doctrine of America and Australia has its own Mm -hmm. versions of that things we call mateship and I suppose, an egalitarian streak that's a little bit more um, kind of casual and laid back and cynical and sticking it to the Brits <laughs> than maybe America is, a bit more suspicious of pomp and ceremony. But mm-hmm. that's something into which all of our migrant communities get folded. Um, if you have a country whose identity is based around an ethnicity slash religion, mm-hmm. doesn't that make it more difficult for other identities to be incorporated into that country? And speaking of Israel, like why can I go and move to Israel because of my Jewish heritage, but someone else who, mm-hmm. but you presumably, uh, mm-hmm. can't do so as easily because you don't ha- you're not of Jewish extraction. Well, I think it's in some ways it's it's there's definitely a greater tension, right? Israel's in Israel's a is a nation state uh, and an ethnic democracy, whereas America is not. It's it's uh, two competing. Or it's it's a, it's a different conception of a political order, but I think actually there are European countries that come close to that. I mean, in Denmark, Denmark passed a policy where they're basically, I mean, this is arguably less intense than what Israel does in terms of becoming socialized into the country. Denmark is forcing immigrant children to like learn about certain Christian uh, holidays, even though Denmark is ostensibly a pretty secular nation. Mm. Um, immigrant children are forced to learn about Christmas and Easter. And if I were to move to Israel with kids, uh, my kids would not be forced to learn about things like Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and things of that nature. So to a certain extent, yes. I mean, I would say on the surface, and even not on the surface, um, there are different tensions that have to be navigated if you're a non-Jew moving into and being integrated into Israeli society. Uh, there's, there will always be a, a tension between the majority and minority communities, and that tension has to be navigated. And I think prime ministers in the past perhaps have navigated it a little bit more uh, efficiently than the current one is. But, um, <laughs> but <laughs> That's but the, under, the, the understatement of the year on this podcast. <laughs> yep. But at the same time, you know, again, you're, a lot of European countries, you know, the Queen of England is considered to be also the head of the church in England. Um, and there are countries in Europe that do have a distinct religious character about them, even though we sort of like to forget about that in 2018. Mm. 
the let's get straight to to the the kind of the original sin i suppose of modern israel which mm-hmm. is uh, which is the post 1967 borders and the occupation um mm-hmm. uh, have do you have you seen that movie where they interview all of the former heads of mossad about the occupation do you know um, it's i'm my brain I know is blanking. I know what movie you're talking it. about. I haven't, I haven't seen it because it, it came out when I was in like college. Yeah. I know what you're talking about. It's an amazing, amazing film where um, mm-hmm. all of the every single former head of Israel's security agency basically recounts their experience in the late '60s and says, "Look, we we just sort of blundered in because we we could, and we all just assumed mm-hmm. that this was going to be a temporary state of affairs. But we all understood right. that it would be catastrophic in the long term to Israel's survival if it didn't right. bend over backwards to find a way to eventually relinquish these lands back to 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 the Palestinians in some way, shape, or form. And we knew that wasn't going to be easy, but we just sort of assumed it would happen. And then time just kept." rolling on and the calendar just got went on and on and on and there were missed opportunities on both sides and horrible intransigence on the Palestinian side but also very frequently a lack of vision and generosity on the Israeli side and now fast forward to where there is just a a permanent intransigent uh, stalemate essentially and so I take your point about Hamas being really good at manipulating at plucking the heartstrings and and fostering a sort of bleeding heart, woolly-headed leftist sympathy for Palestinians, especially among the left in countries like the UK and Australia, even more mm-hmm. so, I think, than in the States. But at the same mm-hmm. time, you know, my country of Australia has a fundamental sin, which was the invasion and genocide of the indigenous people here, that it's trying to reconcile itself with. America mm-hmm. has slavery, not to mention the fact of its relationship with its native people. And Israel has this thing that, it strikes me it's not trying very hard and hasn't been trying very hard for decades to try to reconcile itself with, which is that it's it's got over a million people living in squalid refugee camps in mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and it expects this to continue in perpetuity and there's no serious attempt. Now, we can also flip back and say, well, what are the Palestinians doing? But there's no serious attempt, it strikes me, from the Israeli, from the powerful people in Israel to mm-hmm. reckon with this. Okay. I have so much to say about this, Great. so <laughs> bear with me. So I, the first thing I have to get out of the way is I have to say I, I don't think it's fair to make the comparison between America's history of slavery, uh, Australia's history of genocide with the indigenous population and what's going on with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. I think actually the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is closer to, I, I would compare it to two Native American tribes um, fighting each other as opposed to a, a colonialist tribe oppressing an, a, a native tribe, especially um, just because of the history of, of basic uh, yearning on the part of the Jewish people to return to, to Israel. It's a different dynamic and it's a, it's a different, um, it's a different dynamic in, in terms of ideology and it's a different dynamic on the ground. That's number one. Number two, I'd say that there are a couple books that it, if your audience members are interested, should read about this topic. The first is called Like Dreamers by Yossi Klein-Halevi, uh, which is really about the different the different soldiers and, and where they are on the political spectrum who ended up reuniting Jerusalem after the Six-Day War and the aftermath of the Six-Day War. Um, I would also encourage people to read uh, uh, Golda Meir's biography, Lioness, which just came out a few months ago by Francine uh, Claxburn. Just it gives interesting insight into the into how politics works or has worked historically in Israeli society. Now I bring all this up because I think that there is an, a facade happening with regard to the perception that Israel isn't isn't doing things, hasn't done things to really um, try to make the stalemate as you as you correctly pointed out, better and, and alleviate certain things with regard to uh, bettering Palestinians' lives. I also would like to say that I think that a lot of the the uh, the speaking on behalf of Palestinians or in the name of Palestinians on the part of certain European politicians as of late is a sort of false, um, a, a false compassion. Um, because there are things that that can be done and and have been done actually by the Israeli government that reflect the true compassion that don't get headlined in the news. Uh, For example, um, earlier this year, the Israeli government actually passed the bill in the Knesset, and I can send you a link to this, um, essentially saying that they wanted to invest about, I think it was a billion dollars with the help of the international community in Gaza, 
Um, and I think that if you were to look at different papers coming out of the echelons of the Israeli government, different policy papers, this is something that a lot of politicians in Israel and a lot of policymakers have been discussing over the past six months about trying to alleviate a little bit of the blockade for Gazans, um, trying to build seaports in Gaza to alleviate uh, some of the hardships in terms of the economy, the, the realization that it is not good for the Israeli people that the Gazan economy should collapse. So there actually have been I mean, a lot a bit, of stuff. It's fairly late, isn't it, Chloe? It's more than a decade since they pulled out of Gaza and the blockade has been incre- I mean, so condemned by so many groups as being arbitrary with restrictions on medical supplies needlessly. The restrictions change mm-hmm. month to month. It's it's obvious, you know, that that it is punitive, not just um, uh, from a national security point of view, the extent to which Gaza is blockaded. It's a way of punishing Palestinians for having voted for Hamas. Well, I think I, I think that I think that there have been throughout the current government different iterations of actual actual policies being passed to consider trying to alleviate certain things in Gaza. I don't think the the blockade is is um, completely arbitrary. I think that. What Israel is dealing with right now is the challenge of coming to the realization that, no, the, it is not good that the Gazan economy sh- uh, should collapse. In fact, it is, ver- it is objectively good that the people of Gaza should be invested in. But how do you do that without ensuring, while ensuring that Hamas doesn't um, exploit that and use that, essentially, to generate more hostile attacks against Israeli citizens? And that is a serious challenge that mm. I don't think can be can be simply dismissed by, you know... No, that's true. Um, that's true. Um, so, I th- so I think... And I th- look, I think... I, I, let's, let's say that I would agree with you that perhaps in the past, certainly the Israeli government could have done more to alleviate um, the problems that Gazan people were, were experiencing. Well, all I'm saying is that they're doing things now, and so I don't think it's fair to act as if they're not doing things. Um, or so to... when when you when you say that Western politicians uh, have that their kind of empathy is phony, what do you think is right. motivating it? Well, it depends on the politician. I think that there are some politicians who mean well who actually think that some of the policies that they're promoting would help Gazans. I think that there are other politicians, for example, Corbyn, who are anti-Semites and who are this simply is the British, the British Labour leader, the opposition leader in the UK. Yeah, who seems to have an extremely undue antipathy towards Zionism, which he often uses as a code word for obviously Jewish. He talks about British Zionists, which can only really mean right. one thing, Jews. Right. I mean, it's it's sort of difficult to claim that you're not, you don't mean Jews when you're talking about a philosophy that the majority of Jews believe in and identify with. Um, so in his case, I think it's a very dark and disturbing uh, antipathy um, and in the in the in the case of other politicians, it just depends. On, they could be coming from a place of ignorance. I mean, I don't think most pro-Israel people, quite frankly, know about the steps that the Israeli government has taken to try to invest more in in Gazan civil society. Um, so it wouldn't surprise me. You know, that's not a talking point, by the way. Um, that's that's said a lot in pro-Israel circles. So it wouldn't surprise me if. People who are critical of Israel or almost anti-Israel um, wouldn't know that, wouldn't know about just the, the things happening behind the scenes in the Knesset. Isn't that all just happening, though, over the... That doesn't really get to the core of my of the critique that I that in my rambling and incoherent way I was trying to, I was trying to articulate, <laughs> um, which is, yes, I'm sure that Israel is trying to do its best to grapple with a shitty situation... I'm also mm-hmm. sure that there seem to be lots of people on the right in Israel who don't give a fuck about what happens to the Palestinians and think that they've brought it upon that, themselves. That is true. And, that, that is true. And all of this, regardless of that, is just um, is just a thin layer of ice over a gigantic steaming shit turd of a situation. Uh, and I don't think you've addressed the question of whether or not, like putting Gaza aside and just going back to right. going back to the, the 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 decades and decades prior to Israel's withdrawal from Gaza when it was trying to deal with the Palestinian Authority and looking at the West Bank as well and building the mm-hmm. wall and making life intolerable for, for Palestinians to, to be able to cross into Israel or even carving out bits of the West Bank so it's so difficult for them to get from one town to another, splitting farmers off from their water supply, splitting farmers off from towns. Like there's ju- It just seems that there's been, if not a persistent effort to make life shitty, then at least a persistent negligence in attempting to make life good f- 
for mm. Palestinians and certainly a persistent reluctance to seriously engage or or, or, or give up any skin in the game to find I, a solution yeah, in, the, I, in the long term. Like, what's the big picture? What's the big picture well, endgame here? Because I only see a big picture endgame of Israel ceasing to be Israel or ceasing to be Jewish because eventually there's going to have to be some kind of reckoning. I don't think this is sustainable for centuries. Well, I think that that the way you've characterized the historical record is not accurate. I mean, there have clearly been uh, a series of negotiations in which Israel has offered up land for peace, um, in which the Palestinian political representatives have walked away. Um, And I think it's, I mean, that's just just clear. And, And that's also been clear on the part of, you know, the U.S. sort of, uh, the U.S. individuals who are who are involved in those negotiations, including, you know, Bill Clinton, who famously said that the, the, the reason for the failure of peace talks was, for example, when Yasser Arafat r- walked away hmm. uh, from everything. I mean, the Israeli prime minister essentially offered him everything. Everything he wanted, and he walked away. So I, I do think there's been a clear. Well, there were some. Of, just to caveat, there were some. There were some disagreements about East Jerusalem and about the right of return and things like that. And I think Arafat was walking away, thinking foolishly that it was like a he was buying a used car and he could he could pretend to walk away and come back and get a better deal. But of course, you know, then Clinton well, leaves office and things change and politics change and. Um, I, I would disagree with that. I would disagree with that. I think that Arafat's character made it very clear that the spirit of the of the negotiations from Israel's point of view was in good faith. And I don't think that the negotiations from his perspective was in good faith. And I think that the, the, the fact that he was saying in English a very specific thing to his audience, talking about peace and all these things, while simultaneously going back to his base in Ramallah, encouraging terror attacks against Israeli civilians, I think that that challenges the notion that Arafat was simply waiting for a better deal because he just really wanted that extra, that extra little piece, let's say, in East Jerusalem. And I think, I think Arafat wanted it all and has always wanted it all. And also, I don't think Arafat is, I mean, I have so much to say about Arafat being <laughs> a, a ridiculous, uh, uh, just corrupt human being who stole millions of dollars from his own people. I have no, like, my heart does not cry for, for Arafat, not, not on the part of you know, being a Zionist, but certainly not on the part of having what I believe is a fairly actually pro-Palestinian position. So I I think that there are just too many, too many things in his record that suggests that he was an unseemly character. Hmm. Um, But in terms of your point about, you know, about some of the different moves that perhaps the Likud party should have made or or could have made to, to make things better, I don't think, I don't agree with your characterization of the building of the wall. I mean, the the security fence clearly led to a the, the security fence was clearly built for a certain reason, namely the fact that uh, you know Palestinian certain Palestinian Palestinians were going into Israeli society and blowing themselves up mm. in in marketplaces and in clubs and things of that nature. Yeah. So sorry, it's not. It's, so, it, it, I don't just I don't uh, I don't quibble with the existence or the rationale from a security point of view of building a wall. It's the specific route that the wall took, which seemed to be uh, to, to dig deep into what the international community regards as being Palestinian lands, that just well, forms part of a mosaic, just one small piece of a jigsaw puzzle of I don't know Isra- Israeli government's not giving a fuck about Palestinians. Well, I th- I also think that's false. I mean, my first trip to Israel, I actually one of the people we met with was a person who designed the wall. And there's if you were to if you were to research it, there's actually been multiple times that the Israeli government has actually moved pieces of the wall because it's it's um b- because it's been a hassle for Palestinian families. Now, has it done it all the time? No, of course not. Um, now, if you ask me if I expect the Israeli government to do it all the time, no, of course not. But the fact that it has done it. And the, course, and the fact that it has actually responded to sometimes when Palestinian families have complained about the, the, um, the cutting into different you know, pieces of agriculture, that seems to me to be an indication of, of, of not negligence as you, as you described it. Look, I think that there are different, different policies perhaps in the, in, the, in the past that Israel could have, could have pursued differently here and there, but I, do, I don't think that's the crux of the issue. I don't think that's the, the core of the issue. I think that the core of the issue remains um, this political culture within Palestinian society that, that is just simply the wholesale rejection of Israel's existence, and which will, which will continue to exist as long as the current leadership is in power, regardless of whether or not Israel 
removes a piece of uh, the security fence uh, or, you know, says that says that they can have all of East Jerusalem, for example, um, as their capital um, or, you know, puts a freeze on on building homes in Judea and Samaria, as the Bibi Netanyahu government did uh, when Obama was in office. Um, so th- there are certain certain things that we can test and see by actually looking at the historical record and seeing, well, would this lead to uh, Palestinian political leaders coming to the table and being like, this is great. Thank you for dotting your I's and crossing <laughs> your T's and giving us everything we wanted. Now we will stop telling our people that you, the, your blood is, is, you know, making your presence is making Jerusalem defiled. Now we will do that. I mean, I, I just think that the historical record is is contrary to that. And that's what we have to contend with. And that that is actually, that's that's harsh and that's challenging to contend with because, because um, Israel can't actually be autonomous on behalf of the Palestinians. The Palestinians have to make their own choices and they do make their own choices. And I think we should hold them responsible for their choice, for their own choices, just as we would hold anyone else uh, responsible for mm. their choices. This comes back to the soft bigotry of low expectations, that great Obama line um, uh, that that frequently gets invoked in terms of, uh, I mean, I find myself in this hypocritical stance as well to some extent that, (laughs) you know, and I recognize it, that that I do hold, uh, I do hold um, white people who claim to be champions of democracy to a higher standard than I do people who have absolutely nothing, who are scrounging around in the dirt and throwing rocks uh, at their, at people with lots and lots of money and weapons. That's, that's just the way I don't actually expect impoverished people to like, I don't, I don't, I've heard this before, but I, 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 I never quite understood this. I mean, there are millions of impoverished people around the world who are in shittier situations than Palestinians who are not blowing themselves up or throwing rocks at the people who they think is the source of their city situation. Mm. Um, and, and also, and also if I, I believe in this concept of like, like constructive criticism, but but from like a meta perspective, even like I believe that if you if you want if you if you claim to want what's best for Palestinian society, then it stands to reason that you would demand the best of Palestinian society, um, and not and not simply accept uh, accept what accept the accept the unseemly aspects of Palestinian society just because those poor people over there have no other choice because of course they have a choice that's the point of no, but, I, they have a but, but i but I, I also don't want to conflate the the existence of violence from some palestinians as being the the representation of the way that all palestinians are responding to the no, occupation and that right? actually so, that, that actually that actually un- underscores my point Right. Well, no, um, I think it, I think it's sort of well, I don't I don't know who's pointed underscores, but let me make a potentially third point, which is that if, <laughs> if what you're saying is that we need better leadership from Palestinians, then it strikes mm-hmm. me that all stakeholders who have some uh, some sway over that ought to want to foster a, a sufficient sense of trust and good faith amongst Palestinians towards the state of Israel, that they are able to to elect leaders who are not so warlike and that. Electing mm. warlike leaders is at least in part a consequence of feeling like you're besieged. I mean, this happens on both sides. It happens in every country. When you feel right. like you're under attack, you become more extreme. And when you feel like you right. have interlocutors who are at least willing to hear you out, you can put your guard down a little bit. So it, it strikes me... I think me, I agree with that. Yeah, I it strikes me that that. That, would, that would be a reason for Israeli, Israel being less militaristic and going the extra mile to try to bend over backwards. And maybe you're right that the, that the rift is just too far apart and that history shows us that nothing that Israel could ever have done would have stopped um, Palestinian intransigence. But when you say that nothing that Israel could ever have done would have stopped some Palestinians from saying that the blood of Israel should be, you know, should should pour into the into the sea, well, that's never going to happen because some Palestinians will always say that, just as some Israelis will say that Palestinians should be wiped out and that and that Greater Israel should reign uh, forever from sea to river. Um, but those people aren't; those people are never winnable. There was this great Israeli general—I can't remember who it was. You might know who said that this is not a battle of us against them. It's some of us and some mm-hmm. of them against some of them and some of us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and that, I think, I think, is the way you yeah. have to start thinking about it. Yeah, I think, I think that I agree with the, uh, with the psychology of what you're saying. Uh, I think it's challenging because of a whole host of, of reasons, uh, not, one of which is the fact that I think if you were to just, just simply look at polling opi- opinions 
from Palestinian society versus Israeli society, and you would find that there are more Israelis that support, for example, the two-state solution than there are Palestinians that support the two-state solution. And there are more Palestinians, just from polling data, that would agree with very explicitly anti-Semitic notions than there are Israelis that would agree with very anti-Palestinian, explicitly anti-Palestinian notions. So I think that's something, that's, that's just another factor that um, one has to contend with because it's, it's, it sucks, but it's not equivalent. It's actually not an equivalent... Um, sure. I mean, I'm not sure about the two-state solution polling. I think Palestinian, if Palestinians were guaranteed that they could have a, an independent state, I mean, we're talking at our asses because I guess we don't really right. know the polling data. <laughs> but uh, I think incre- increasingly, especially with the influx of, of ultra-Orthodox Jews into, into Israel and the changing demographics there and the declining birth rates among progressive left-wing Israelis uh, and the disillusionment in Israel, I wouldn't be surprised if, the, if there wasn't a lot of support anymore for a two-state solution in Israel, or at least if, if their support was merely rhetorical and, and not practical. But when it comes to hatred of, like, the fact that there's likely more anti-Semitism among Palestinians than there is hatred of Arabs among Israelis, that comes back mm-hmm. to partly what I was talking about, about the the impoverished child living in squalor and throwing rocks at the oppressor. Like, of course that person is less educated and less sophisticated and less enlightened than the person mm-hmm. who presides over an army with nuclear weapons and tanks and uh, was educated at a New York at a fancy New York uh, school Ivy League school and who goes back and runs a country. So I don't I don't when you say that like actually, why, just, we, actually, why do we <laughs> why, why do we get so hung up on these people when there are lots of poor people in shitty situations in the world? I do think we we carry with us this kind of post colonial sort of guilt that the that people who represent themselves to be part of the Enlightenment, Western democracy, civilized mm. world, uh, that, mm-hmm. when, that when they tolerate or are complicit in uh, the, the the suppression of people's aspirations for for, for freedom, that that mm-hmm. has that that just smells a bit a bit like and rhymes a little bit too much with all of the things that we've done for the past few hundred years that we regret having done, and so that right. that does affect us a bit more than just random poor people who happen to be in Africa. Uh, in shitty situations that we that representatives who align themselves with us aren't causing. Well, I think that's I think that's in part I think that's a perfect characterization of the jingoism that is um, quite frankly affecting a lot of Western commentators uh, on this particular issue. I mean, Israel is as much as a Western country as it is a Middle Eastern country, and this is this goes back to why I'm so excited about doing um, this YouTube series on identity because. Because, yeah, I mean, um, there is, you know, Israel has a Western sensibility, but it also is, a, is very much a Middle Eastern country. Uh, the majority of the country is Mizrahi, not Ashkenazi, mm. um, you know, and, and that affects the character of the state. And Israel is not simply this, I, hate, I actually sort of cringe when I hear the, this is a sort of pro-Israel language, Israel is, a, is the Western outpost, you know, in the Middle East which doesn't actually quite get to the character of the state and of the country, which is actually far more complex and complicated than I think uh, you're, you're describing, number one. And, and, and an inability to, to sort of wrestle with the complexity of even the Jewish nature of the state, which, again, is affected by the Mizrahi majority, um, which is Middle Eastern in character. Yeah, and just to clarify, just to find Mizrahi versus Ashkenazi? For people who yeah, don't so know. Mizrahi, Mizrahi are Jews who come from uh, the northeast, or excuse me, the, the North Africa and the Middle East. So Tunisia, Morocco, Egypt, uh, you know, uh, Iran, uh, Lebanon, etc. Um, most of many of whom were kicked out uh, of or, or or sort of run out of town when Israel was reestablished in 1948. And then immigrated to Israel in droves in the in the late 40s and early 50s. Um, so they are very much a part and parcel of the fabric of Israeli society. And it's sort of, I mean, I know you don't mean to, and people don't mean to, but it's a bit of an insult to discount them because their narrative is very much a part of Israeli society. So I, I say all that to say the number just just to keep in mind that Israel is not simply a Western country. It is as much a Middle Eastern country as it is a Western country, and that is a part of the, of the character um, of the country. And I, and, and I still keep going back to this, uh, to this impulse within myself that says, that just finds it very cringeworthy 
to suggest that because the Palestinians, what what it seems to me that you're saying uh, is that because the Palestinians, this is what you're saying, we conceive of Israel as X, as one of us, as sort of a Western uh, country that is enlightened and democratic, etc. And we perceive the Palestinians as this sort of poor, uh, downtrodden, oppressed brown people. And so we, because we, the West, have this history of oppressing brown people, we expect Israel to be better and not do that, essentially. Well, there are a whole host of problems with that way of, with that way of thinking. Number one, because one of the things is what I just described, Israel is actually both a Western country and a Middle Eastern country. But number two, Israel is, does not have the same history as these Western countries. Israel is actually one of the only countries in human history to bring black people to its shores or people of color to, to its shores for the purposes of rescuing them. We see this not only, for example, in the, in the campaigns to, to rescue Mizrahi Jews, but also in the campaigns in, in the 90s to rescue Ethiopian Jews. Uh, from from Gondar, Ethiopia, um, during the uh, civil wars of Ethiopia during that time. So Israel has a fundamentally different history and and comes out of a different historical context uh, than than the U.S., than Australia, than the British Empire. Many people forget that Israel had an entire streak of fighting against the British Empire. Many people forget that when Golda Meir went to African countries when she was a member of the Labour Party and I think the foreign minister um, in, the, in the 50s, that she was considered to be a revolutionary by many in the, in, in the African countries because they considered her to be, Israel to be one of them and not one of the West. So Israel has this complex uh, character about it that cannot be pigeonholed into a, West, a purely Western conception of identity. And if you miss, if if one misunderstands that, then one will get the Israeli-Palestinian conflict completely wrong. And that's why, to go back to what I said earlier, I think that it is closer to, for example, you know, two Native American tribes. Let's say the Choctaw and the Cherokee Native American tribes fighting each other and having to navigate the complexities of that than it is just an oppressor oppressing brown people. That is that is that does not get at the heart of the history of Israeli society, the Israeli conception of identity, um, and it doesn't get at the heart of what Israel fundamentally is. It is not simply a Western country. I'm glad you make that point. It's a good one. Um, I would just, I would just alter, qualify what your artic- what your um, yeah. interpretation of what I was saying is, which is. I'm not saying that we say that Israel is Western. I'm saying that Israel mm-hmm. presents itself as being a Western democracy. Israel's whole mm-hmm. shtick is we are the civilized ones in a, in a region that mm-hmm. is chaotic. If Israel's motto was, hey, we're better than Yemen, I'd be fine, <laughs> right? But that's not their motto. <laughs> their motto is we stand up here in beautiful Italian suits and we speak perfect English and we are one of you guys <laughs> and we are the civilized ones and these people are in a, in a region of savages. Um, uh-huh. And so that and that brings me to the two tribes. This idea of two tribes—it's an interesting analogy, but and I suppose it's correct because you're not talking about colonialists who had no connection to the land just randomly coming in the way that they did in Australia or or, or in um, in the Americas. But I would just qualify it by saying it's a bit like if two Native American tribes were in a conflict and one of them had the 101st Airborne and the other one didn't. <laughs> so. <laughs> Well, yes, but but yes. I mean, obviously, in terms of like material, you know, uh, access to weapons, <laughs> that that would make that would mean that one had more power. Yeah, but and you'd be sympathetic like, to the ones who who were getting bombed. Like you'd be like, oh, that's shitty. For not them. necessarily. Not necessarily. No, because because again, I do not I do not do Twitter level you know analysis. I would be interested in the in the complex nature of the conflict, how the conflict came to be. I would not simply say, oh, this Native American tribe has has fighter jet planes and one does not. Therefore, I'm going to side for the one that does not. I mean, that strikes me as just just not, just uninteresting political analysis. I think that there there's more there's, there's more that meets the eye. And I think if we are mature, responsible uh, you know, people who are analyzing the complexity, and it's, it's, it's so complex, 
Hmm. That's one of the most complex conflict, which which makes which I think is what really contributes to the stalemate. Um, that yeah. it's actually much more complex than than what it is described to, or how it is described to be on social media. Definitely, um, and that's also why it's such a frustrating thing to talk about, and why people are so intransigent. It's almost like if it, when when problems are simple, people can talk about them at length and try to find some, I suppose, some way of hearing each other out. But when when problems are extremely complicated, people simplify them down and dilute them into cartoon cutouts, and then it becomes, right. and then they become even more certain about about their own position. So that's, I mean, that's one reason why I find it refreshing to talk to you, because there is obviously a lot of nuance going on, and the points on which we disagree, you could, we could drill down, we could spend five hours drilling down into precisely, <laughs> into precisely why, and I think yeah. we can do it in good faith. So let's park Israel there. Oh, also, before I forget, when you were talking about Israel being both East and West, it reminded me, I was in Greece in 2015 during the referendum on whether to crash out of the, um, the Eurozone, and mm-hmm. when they voted no, and um, people, Greeks then were saying, like, you've got, who were, who were very, very in favour of staying in the Eurozone and were terrified of leaving, were saying, you've got to remember, like, we think of Greece as being the poorest country in the EU, but you could also think mm-hmm. of it as being the richest country in the Balkans, the most successful mm. country in the Balkans. And if we, mm. if we are no longer part of the Eurozone, we will become Albania. And that, mm. that, like, flicked a switch in me, and I thought, oh, yeah, they're not just shitty, like, poor <laughs> Europeans down on the... Like, they are straddling a hugely complicated set of cultural and economic issues in a way that is not totally dissimilar to, to Israel. Cause anytime you're parked on a crossroads, I guess, yeah, right. they're, they're, it's complicated. Um, Wait, can I add one more yeah, thing please. before we park? Yeah. Okay. So this is interesting because this speaks, this, this reminds me of, of what I like to say when I'm like lecturing about this is that you can't use like a Western political you can't use the Western political spectrum to understand Israeli society. And what I mean by that is, for example, we're talking about the difference between Ashkenazim and Mizrahi Jews, right? What, what's even more fascinating is that Mizrahi Jews in, in Israel often tend to vote right wing. And so, so the, the, if you were to examine it from an American lens, you would assume that the people of color, quote unquote, right, the, the, mm. the, the brown Jews would vote left. But actually, historically... In Israeli society, it was the Likud party that uh, campaigned on behalf of the Mizrahi. And it mm. was the Labour party, which was Ashkenazi, that campaigned on the part of the Ashkenazi cultural elite. So it's all topsy-turvy if you're looking at it through an American lens. Meanwhile, the Mizrahi community, by and large, to a large extent, votes conservative and votes right-wing in, in uh, Israeli society. So... It's just to be again to look at it on the surface in a superficial way, you would be like, you would be confused. Like, why are the mm. people of color voting right wing? But in point of fact, the Mizrahi community has had um, a mixed uh, relationship, really to confuse people. The Mizrahi community has had a mixed relationship with the Arabs historically when they were living in Arab. When they were living in, do Arab, you mean a positive, Arab, a positive mixed countries. relationship with the Arabs? Part what? of it was positive. Part of it was very negative. Right. And so, and so... Oh, I see what you're saying. So, so are, the, are the Mizrahi more uh, religious? Would that explain why they're more right-wing? Mizrahi are more traditional, yes. Uh, so they're more religious. And this is the irony, because you have Ashkenazi people on screen, like, saying what you just said, like, we are a Western democratic outpost, blah, 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 and the suits and speaking English. But then there's a very, uh, there's a very large community in Israel that are not... Um, that are traditional, that are voting right wing, that have mm. a very uh, complicated relationship with with Arab communities, that are mm. that are less that are less likely to what they would describe as bullshit you on telling you how they feel about the Arabs, and you cannot assess that in a American in a, an American way because because in that case it's like two groups of brown people. Right, right yeah, who yeah, are yeah, who yeah. who who don't like each other, or who have had a a very difficult ten, tension filled relationship mm. historically, and but that's see, but that's the fascinating stuff, and that's the complicated stuff, and we don't mm. get to talk about that on Twitter. Yeah, so. no, I like I like that. <laughs> I mean, yeah, my dad has has friends who went to Israel, and uh, he was in Habonim, which is like this Jewish uh, you know community camp, kind of like scouts, and he has uncles over there, and they are all the jaded white skinned. Uh, left-wing Labour Jews who mm-hmm. resent yeah. the fact that Netanyahu has this huge base of brown-skinned people to whom he's a populist uh, demagogue. Uh, yeah, right. in, in, in their and, eyes. And, 
and I bet, and I bet you most, most people who are like even assessing BB's, you know, uh, power plays don't realize that. Don't realize that a lot of his constituency are actually people of color. Well, it's also like, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of naivete in, in the States and, and in Australia about, well, especially in the States, I think it's gone so much further in the States than it has anywhere else, the, the obsession with identity. Like I was talking to an American friend about the fact that uh, Asian Australians uh, tend to be conservative. I don't know whether they're majority conservative, but Asian Australians mm-hmm. tend to be, uh, and there's a huge number, like more than half of Australia has arrived since the Second World War. We have an immigration rate three times higher than the United States per capita, and uh, a large large chunk of that is Asian. And they're essentially hardworking, conservative, small business people who vote for, who vote conservative and like in an American mm-hmm. American context, a recent person of color migrant is supposed to be left wing. So that's a little mm-hmm. bit baffling. But it's actually wealthy. Right. It's wealthy white inner city people like me who swill our chardonnay and sip our lattes who vote <laughs> left wing in Australia. You know. uh, it's not so much people of color. Um, so let's just pivot back to the states to wrap this up. Um, do you have any final thoughts about? I mean, the the piece that you wrote in the New York Times that we were alluding to earlier was um, was headlined "Why I Refuse to Avoid White People" and was basically about how when you were growing up, you didn't really hear the words white privilege. That was something that you heard when you got to college. Um, Correct. And so speak to me about whiteness and the path forward for the left. Yeah, you know, I don't know what's going on with the left. There's this, uh, there's this trend, this unhealthy trend of racial essentialism uh, that essentially says that by virtue of being white, or quite frankly, by virtue of being black, um, that you are expected to embody a particular uh, a, a, a particular set of really behaviors, and, and it is assumed that you would have had a particular set of experiences by virtue of your skin color. Actually, this is happening on both the left and the right. Um, the left, you see it, I think, coming from the likes of uh, uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates, who, if people don't know, I really, really dislike his ideas for the most part. Um, I had a piece in Atlantic Magazine responding to one of his pieces about Donald Trump. Mm. Uh, so, ta- so Ta-Nehisi Coates is the, really the, I mean, he, he has really pioneered this, at least in contemporary life, this idea on racial essentialism. Uh, and he believes that, quote unquote, whiteness is the, the reason for the season, if you will, <laughs> the, the reason for everything bad and, 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 toxic and dominating and evil in the world. Um, I think on the right, you have people like Candace Owens, who, who also uh, engage in this exercise of racial essentialism by saying, you know, the left has, the Democrats have tricked us and all of us black people are waking up and we're getting off the plantation, uh, which is really just a horrible analogy and trivializing of, of what the experience of slavery was like. Yeah. So, the, so this is happening on both the left, on the fringes, I think, of the left and the right. And it's actually quite toxic because what it essentially says is that, let's take Colts' perspective, for example. He, I don't know if you saw his piece in Atlantic calling, he, he, claimed, he accused Kanye West of, yeah. of exercising <clears throat> whiteness. Okay, so yeah. that, is, that is so insulting as a black person because what he's essentially saying is that Kanye West does not have the freedom to be wrong. That's essentially what he's saying, because... Well, he's saying, I think, just to articulate his argument, for people who haven't read it, I think he was saying that extremely privileged, uh, wealthy black people find themselves, well, specifically Kanye, can find themselves falling (laughs) into a trap of of kind of universalizing their own luxury and privilege. And so Mm -hmm. Kanye has become a Trump supporter, and in Ta-Nehisi Coates' eyes, he's basically become white in the sense that he's lost any connection to the to what it means to be a minority because he's been privileged for so long. I think that's the way that I would articulate Right, and so, and, and so, and, and so embedded in that argument is this idea uh, that minorities, I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting psychology. It's like minorities must be underprivileged by virtue of being a minority, essentially. Or minorities, minorities aren't, um, Minorities lose their minority card essentially once they once they engage in certain behaviors that are that are deemed unseemly. But what I think is ironic about that, and I wrote a piece that I did not publish, but I wrote a piece responding to to, to this. Um, it's 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 dangerous because what you're essentially doing when you're describing quote unquote whiteness or quote unquote blackness is 
you're essentially arguing a, a, a caricature of what it means to be either white or black, hmm. essentially. Uh, and, and that's dangerous because in the era of Jim Crow, if I recall correctly, there were white people who were saying to be black meant to be associated with, you know, um, devil-like behavior, to be associated with unseemly behavior, to be associated with all these bad things. And on the basis of that, lynchings happen, right? Mm. And I, fi- I, f- I find it interesting that it seems that there's a flip in the argument today on the left where people are saying by virtue of being black, you have to be, you have to toe a certain political line. When the point is, when I think that the point of freedom is autonomy and, and, and autonomy means you can be right and you can be wrong. Like I think Kanye West was wrong in his opinion and, and Kanye West as a free black person can be wrong. You have the freedom to be wrong. And I think that there's something uh, quite dangerous actually in suggesting that you can't be wrong or to be wrong is akin to, to exercising a thing called whiteness. Mm. Um, Cause that's a, I mean, that's a caricature. Yeah. I don't know if you saw the brouhaha about Trevor Noah and the French ambassador when the France won the world cup, but um, there was a similar thing there where Trevor Noah on the daily show on comedy central did a joke uh, saying that Africa won the world cup because all of the French team players, you know, more than half were people of color. And the mm-hmm. French ambassador to the United States wrote to Trevor Noah in strong terms saying these people are French. They were born in France. Almost all of them are French citizens and born in France. It's not like they were just imported in order to win, right. you know, to win for us. These people are French. Your kind of racial essentialism is denying their Frenchness in the same way that the far right does. They say that, oh, look, this isn't really a French team. And a couple of episodes ago on this show, I had John Litchfield on the show, who's the former Paris bureau chief of the independent newspaper in the UK, who's an English French guy, to explain the difference between um, the way that we think about identity in uh, mm-hmm. in France versus in the United States. And he was basically making that same point, that this sort of essentialism that, that America has gotten itself into is something that in France is regarded as being completely toxic and is obvious to everybody that it, that, that, is, that mm-hmm. is just a dead end. But Ta-Nehisi Coates seems to, seems to also think it's a dead end and he seems to think there's no way out of it. Like, he, he engages in it, but, <laughs> like, if you read his books, he thinks that there will never be an end to racial antagonism and that, there will, that this is just the, 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 the natural state of affairs, which I think is incredibly well, depressing. Well, I think he says something even worse. I mean, of cor- I think there, of course, will be you know, racial antagonism. I think what he's saying is worse in the sense that, in the sense that he's saying racial antagonism is responsible for everything. And this is, uh, what's that? There's a famous linguist professor who was actually just named an editor at the Atlantic. Uh, I think it, Glenn Lowry, perhaps. Yeah, right. Oh, I didn't know that he was. Um, yeah, Glenn's amazing. So he, he had a great piece recently, <laughs> not denying the fact that microaggressions exist, Right. But 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 being baffled at this idea that my, that microaggressions should and must stop black people from succeeding. And, and I think that's the distinction. Um, and which is sort of ironic because Coates has succeeded uh, like he his success or, or his success is almost a, a rebuttal to his own argument in a way. Um, his his existence is a response to his despair right so he's also also yeah yeah go ahead well i was just gonna say he's also extremely compelling to white people because he knows all of the buttons to push like i read it and i go fuck me i am a piece of shit (laughs) like i am complicit in something that is far bigger than i could even have conceived of and he's such a good writer like some people he's an amazing writer some people disagree like (laughs) i've got a friend camille foster i don't know if you know camille um who is a a, a, also a dissident kind of african-american intellectual who's in new york who you should catch up with actually he's a a very good guy he's been a guest on this show too and he uh he doesn't he thinks he's coach is a, is a terrible writer and i'm like you cannot say that like just you can't you cannot say that at least grant him <laughs> at least grant him the, the fact that he's an amazing writer and an incredibly sort of manipulative and, and emotive and passionate uh and empathic uh writer but what he's really mm-hmm. selling is he's selling for white people to he's selling white shame and guilt and it's a kind of a circle jerk, I feel, sometimes between white people to, <laughs> to like, out, you know, out-noble themselves and, and signal their virtue to each other by how much they love Ta-Nehisi Coates. Well, well, this is the great, this is really the sad uh, but also hilarious irony of it is that the people who like him the most are white people. 
Yeah. Like it's not like it's not like black people we're like in our circles being like, so did you read the latest? Son of <laughs> like we're not. We're, we are not. It's white people that are fascinated and and um, just flummoxed and bending over backwards uh, for a person who is telling them um, that he hates them. <laughs> essentially, and Glenn Lowry brings up this point as well. He said he talks about how he he was talking to one of his friends who was white and who was sort of like, you know obsessed with Ta-Nehisi Coates, or, or not obsessed, but interested in the argument. And, and Glenn Lowry says to him, you do realize that he hates you. Not, mm. not you, white person in the abstract, but you, specifically. And he says, now, do you think that you are worthy or deserving of that hatred? Do you think that you, you personally are worthy or deserving of that hatred? And it, really, and it really made him think and pause and just be like, well, no, I don't, I don't actually. And so... I do think there is a surface level love mm. that is that that meaning. Well, I think there's a surface level love that comes out of um, Tanahashi Coates' writings. Meaning, let me let me rephrase that. That's the wrong way to put it. I think that to think that his writing is beautiful is accurate, but only if one is reading on the surface. I think right. that once one unpacks what he is saying one realizes that what he is writing is actually, at least from my perspective as a black person, quite terrifying. Uh, Why? Because what he's essentially arguing is that being black can be reduced to or narrowly defined by any one singular experience. And what the, the beauty of James, one of James Baldwin's uh, debates against uh, a really famous conservative co- uh, commentator whose name I forget, but he debated him actually at the UK. Um, and he famously said that, you know, the whole point of, of putting the humanity and realizing and recognizing the humanity of black people is realizing that black people can be anything. Mm. They can be, we, we can be incredible philosophers, philanthropists, artists, in Kanye's, persp- uh, you know, um, situation, or we can also be like horrible dictators mm. and, and, and brutal and cruel. Right. But, but the fact, the recognition that we can be all of these things is the recognition of the humanity of black people. And what's ironic about what Coates is doing very subtly is denying that. And that was really the, the, the crux of my problem with his piece about Kanye right. is that to suggest that Kanye's, uh, ridiculous statements make him white is to actually take away the humanity of Kanye as a black person. And in that humanity, he can be, ba- he can be wrong. Mm. Right. Mm. And so. to clarify, when we talk about Ta-Nehisi Coates, I don't think we're just talking about him, right? I mean, he is, he is an avatar and a lightning rod, but the criticisms mm-hmm. that you're making of him, um, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, could presumably be, be, be made of, what you might call the mainstream Black Lives Matter narrative about race in America at the moment. And it strikes me that there are, that that is the kind of hegemony. And then there's an intellectual dissent, which is quite stupid on the left, which is articulated by, by people like um, Candace Owens. I, I tweeted, by the way, the, um, recently, uh, Candace Owens is what old people think a good young person is and what white people think a good black person is and what dumb people think a good intellectual is. Um, <laughs> That's really good. She, like, I have to find that. Yeah. I want to retweet that. That's okay. really excellent. Um, 5th of June, Josh Sepps. Uh, and, <laughs> but, and like that just annoys the shit out of me, that kind of end of the, of the conservative black spectrum but and then the number of of african-american intellectuals who are like you and camille foster and now coleman hughes this young guy i don't know if you know him and glenn lowry and john mcwater like treading on eggshells taking bullets from all directions and just trying to 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 articulate (laughs) them (laughs) yeah trying to articulate a vision of of independent um individualized sort of blackness that isn't beholden to any particular preset prism of belief is um, mm-hmm. I mean, I don't envy you for being there. Although I must say, as a white person trying to do it, in some ways, it's even more uh, <laughs> dodgy because I can always just be accused yes. of being of being racist uh, in a way that, that you Correct. can't. You just have to be an Uncle Tom. Correct. Yeah. Uh, but I do have to disagree slightly, um, just because Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter is we don't quite know what it is. Meaning, it's not quite an organization with with 
it's, it's more of a coalition. And so you might find a local chapter of Black Lives Matter that has completely different views from a coach type. And I think it's important to make that distinction, especially because Candace Owens gets on my nerves when I see her yelling at members of Black Lives Matter. And even if you disagree with sort of the approach of Black Lives Matter, I think that there's a way that you try to talk to people who... You know, I, someone, I was talking to someone and they, they said something incredible. They said, if you're a politician and you get elected, you, everyone is your constituent, including the people who did not vote for you. And you have to keep that in mind. And I believe that that's an important sort of sentiment that should inform political commentators like Candace Owens who disagree, perhaps uh, correctly so, with certain ideologies and strains of, in Black Lives Matter, but should still speak to members of Black Lives Matter in the respectful way and for the purpose of actually convincing them, not for the purpose of, like, tearing them down and and you know telling them to get off the plantation or whatever yeah. ridiculous rhetoric she's used yeah yeah good point chloe i will leave it there you've been more than generous uh, with your time and we could talk about a bazillion different other things <laughs> i'm sure and hopefully we can uh, in the future but thanks so much for being on the show thank you for having me